One of the greatest human questions is the question of whether, if God exists, he approves of me. Does he love me? And every religion tries to answer that question of how you can know that God accepts you. For most religions, at the end of the day, it boils down to what you do. Do you do more good than bad? It's kind of the way scales idea that goes all the way back through human history. We've even seen that as you look back at like the Egyptians and you look at the, the murals of what happens in the afterlife. Someone comes in and their, their heart is set on the scale and it's weighed against the feather of truth. And we have this way scale idea in our minds of this must be how God measures us. Do we do more good than bad? Or do you do a specific list of things that the God says you must do, and then you're approved of by him? Christianity is different. In the Bible, in the Christian faith, we learn that God saves sinners who don't deserve it. We're dead in our sins, but God, in his mercy, reaches out to us brings us to life, gives us faith. When we look to Jesus by faith, then God sees us as righteous or approved in his sight. And Jesus takes our sin penalty on himself, and he pays it, and he gives us his righteousness. In the book of 1 John, John's writing to help his readers know that they have eternal life, that they are approved of by God. And so in this final passage this morning, as we finish the book of 1 John, John returns one last time to this theme of assurance. He wants us to know that we belong to God. So here's what we're going to see this morning. Four things. Number one, we'll see assurance and your comfort. Number two, assurance and your prayers. Number three, assurance and your savior. And number four, assurance and your responsibility. And really the first one and the last one are very brief. We're going to spend most of our time on the second and third ones this morning. So let's take a look at 1 John 5 verses 13 through 21. Let me read that for you. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So we'll begin with this idea of assurance and your comfort. And this is verse 13. Let me just read it for you again. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John's concern for these people is this. You can live in freedom and security when you know that you belong to God and that you're loved by him. This is the same situation that we have with kids knowing that they're loved by their parents. Kids can have freedom to live without worry when they know that their parents love them. They don't have to worry about where their next meal is going to come from or shelter or things like that. They simply trust their parents because their parents love them. Same thing is true when we know that God loves us. Now, I told you that first point was going to be brief. It's pretty straightforward. That's what all there is to it. John wants them to know you can have confidence in God, that he loves you, that you belong to him. And so he's going to go on now to explain the rest of that. So verses 14 through 17, assurance and your prayers. Assurance and your prayers. Let me read uh, verse 14 for you here. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So God hears our prayers. You can have confidence in prayer when you have confidence in your relationship to God. If I were to go down to Washington, D.C., and I walked into the Capitol building, and I asked to speak to a senator from another state, and I don't have an appointment, the chances of me getting in are pretty slim. Now, if I went and asked if I could see the senator from my state, and I don't have an appointment, the chances are still probably slim, but I might have a little better chance just because I've got that connection of being from the same state. But if that senator is actually a childhood friend of mine, and I've known him for a long time, even if I don't have an appointment, there's a much better chance that he'll be able to take the time to see me. But if he's family, then I'm almost assured that I'm going to be able to go in and see this senator. That's kind of the way it is when we think about our access to God. I've got a spider hanging right here next to me. Uh, our access to God is assured because we're family. He's our father. We don't have to worry about whether or not he's going to be willing to hear us or does he have time for us or anything like that. Now, the verse does say, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It's not a blank check for anything that you want to ask for. We'd love to have a blank check, wouldn't we, from somebody that had unlimited resources. That's not what this is saying. It's saying anything that you ask that's according to his will. So when your desires are brought in line with God's desires, you can be sure that you'll have what you ask from him. We have to keep in mind what scripture teaches about prayer in all of the other places that it talks about it, because scripture doesn't contradict itself. So look at verse 15, because he kind of goes on a little further here. 
if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. When we pray rightly, we can have confidence that God will give us the desire of our heart. But let's temper that with what scripture says in other places. So let me just give you two things to think about. The first one is from the book of Luke. And this is Jesus when he's in the garden of Gethsemane, right before he's about to go through trial and, and to be crucified. And he knows what's coming. And he prays to the Father. And here's what he says in Luke 22, verse 42. Father, if you are willing... Okay, notice there it is, the will of the Father. If you are willing, remove this cup from me. It's the cup of God's wrath that's about to be poured out on him on the cross. So, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So here's Jesus saying in his humanity, what he wants is not to go through the suffering that is in front of him. But he says, ultimately what I want is your will. Now that's one aspect of this we kind of have to keep in mind. Another aspect that we can um, think about that helps us to understand this concept of prayer and receiving what we ask for is something the psalmist says, and this is Psalm 37 and verse four. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So this verse says, look at the second part of it. God will give you the desires of your heart. He'll give you what you want. When, what is the case? Look at the first part. Delight yourself in the Lord. So when you delight yourself in the Lord, when he is what you want, then God will give you what you want. God will give you himself. So as our desires are brought more in line with God's heart, then we have this promise that we receive what we ask from him. Take a look now at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Now, this can get confusing. It's not terribly confusing, though, once we pause and think about it a little bit. Sins that do not lead to death. Okay, what kind of sin does not lead to death? This is probably talking about the majority of people who fall into sin. The majority of Christians who fall into sin. Or even people who have apparently fallen away from the faith for a time. Either when that happens, we know that they were never saved to begin with, or they're backsliding. The Lord often in the Old Testament would have the prophets say things to the people like, return to me. So they've wandered away, but they need to return to the Lord. And all of us are prone to wander and we need to return to the Lord. So if that's the case, if you have a believer who has wandered away from the Lord or who has fallen into sin, what does that believer need to do? Well, John's already told us in chapter one and verse nine, confess your sins and return to him. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what is a sin that does lead to death? 
If a sin that does not lead to death is a sin that you repent of and you come to Jesus for forgiveness, he covers it, that's a sin that does not lead to death. The sin that does lead to death is something different. John's probably got in mind here in the Old Testament, there is a distinction in the law between two different kinds of sins. There's sins that were inadvertent sins. In other words, it wasn't that somebody hardened their heart, rejected God, and decided, I'm going to live this way despite what God says. It's a sin that they inadvertently committed. Now, it could be that they inadvertently, without even realizing it, violated some aspect of the law. It could be that in a moment they gave in to temptation, but they've confessed and repented of that. But those are all categorized together as inadvertent sins. But there's also what scripture calls in the law a high-handed sin. And that's the kind that is hardened in rebellion against God. John's probably got that distinction in mind. When you get to the New Testament and you listen to what Jesus says, he says, for instance, that there is an unforgivable sin. Matthew 12, he talks about this. And he says, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Well, what does it mean to speak against the Holy Spirit? Well, as Jesus was here ministering on earth, the Spirit who had descended on him at his baptism, the Spirit was working through Jesus throughout his ministry and was testifying to who Jesus was. This is really the Son of God. This is really the Messiah. And if you hear the testimony of the Holy Spirit as to who Jesus is, but you reject it, that won't be forgiven. That's what Jesus says. Ultimately, what that is, is rejecting Jesus, and it's rejecting the Holy Spirit's witness of who Jesus is. Now, as John writes to this church, they've had people who were part of their church who have left. And the people who have left, John says, when we listen to what they're saying, we realize they were never really part of us. Their message is not compatible with the truth of the gospel because they're not speaking the truth about Jesus. They're denying the witness of the Holy Spirit as to who Jesus is. They're denying that Jesus truly was human and truly was divine. We've seen that a couple of places throughout this letter as John clarifies that for these people. And so ultimately they are denying that salvation is found in Jesus alone. So should you pray for people like that? Well, John doesn't forbid it. He just doesn't offer much hope. He says, for the person who's hardened in their sin and has walked away from God, I'm not offering you much hope. But the reality is, all of us were apart from God at some point. But when God reached down into our lives and changed us, then we came into alignment with him. We have faith in him. We have set our hope on him. So we can look in our own past and say, well, that was true of me at one point. So how do I know when I look at someone else? Is this someone who's truly hardened in their sin or not? And the reality is we don't know because we don't know people's hearts. 
And so there's nobody that we're actually forbidden from praying for. John's just not offering hope. He's saying there are people who are, are hardened in their sin and will never come to Christ. And we need to understand that reality. Now what that should do though, is it should help us to realize the awful tragedy of rejecting Jesus. Look at the last verse in this section, verse 17. John just kind of summarizes here. He says, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, the word wrongdoing that he uses there is the word unrighteousness. So this tells us the seriousness of all unrighteousness. The wages of sin is death. So when does a sin not lead to death? Well, when it's repented of and confessed and covered by Jesus. His righteousness covers our unrighteousness. This is something that has been part of the message from the beginning. If you can picture all the way back in the Garden of Eden, the story of Adam and Eve, when they commit sin, when they walk away from what God has told them to do. God comes to them in the garden and what's their response? They hide in shame because they're naked, they're uncovered, and they are now realizing this sin that we've committed is open for all to see. God sees us. He sees our sin and our shame. And what does God do? God kills animals and takes the skins from those animals and covers them. He gives them a covering. Now, does that physical animal skin covering actually deal with their, their shame and their guilt and their sin? No, it doesn't. It's a picture. It's God teaching them something. He's teaching them that your sin and your shame needs to be covered. And he's actually also teaching them that it's going to take the shedding of blood for that covering, the effective covering that's going to come one day. It's going to take the shedding of blood for that to happen. When we get to the book of Isaiah, we read this. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. My sin needs to be covered, and the garment of salvation, the thing that God uses to cover my sin, is the robe of righteousness. Jesus tells a story about a wedding, and people who don't show up to the wedding in the proper clothes, and they're not allowed in. Well, the proper clothes for us to show up in, in God's presence, is righteousness, which we don't have on our own. We need the robe of righteousness that only God can provide for us. And so Jeremiah says it this way, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So this is a prophecy about a descendant of David who's going to be king. This is a prophecy about the Messiah. And we know that that's ultimately Jesus. Okay? Jeremiah goes on to say, In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name 
by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Jesus himself, as the Messiah, as the King, will be called, the Lord is our righteousness, because he himself provides in his own person the righteous covering that we need. So there is a sin not leading to death, namely sin that's confessed and covered by Jesus, by his righteousness. Let's look now at assurance and your Savior. And this is verses 18 through 20. Let me read verse 18 for you. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. What this verse is saying is that when Satan attacks you, Jesus protects you. In the middle of that verse, when it talks about he who was born of God protects him, he who was born of God is Jesus. He's the firstborn of creation. He's the son of God. And so this verse is telling you, John is saying to you, when Satan attacks you, Jesus protects you. And he says, the evil one does not touch him. That word touch is only used one other place in the New Testament. It's used in the story of the resurrection when Jesus appears to Mary and Mary is kind of grasping at Jesus and Jesus says, do not cling to me or do not touch me. It's the idea of, of this grabbing onto. And John is saying, Satan can't do that to you because Jesus will protect you. God protects us through the armor that he's provided. We've looked in the past at the armor of God. God gives us tools for the battle and we need that because like Martin Luther said, in a mighty fortress, his craft and power are great, our enemy, the devil. But it's good for us also to remember that Satan can't do anything to us without God's permission. Think of the story of Job. Satan comes into God's presence and he wants to do something to Job, but God says, you can go this far and no farther. And Satan comes back to him and, okay, this far and no farther. In other words, what Satan can do to us is limited by what God allows. Satan is not all-powerful. And also, Jesus is the one who protects us because he's our advocate. John has already talked about this in chapter 2 and verse 1. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. He's the one who comes into God's presence and accuses you. He says to God, how could you ever approve of this person? How could you ever love this person? Look what they've done. And Jesus stands up as our advocate, our defender, our protector. And he says, yes, it's true that they've done that. But I've paid the penalty for that sin. And my own righteousness, my personal righteousness, covers this person. So that when God looks at this person, God is right to see them as righteous. Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God 
and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John is just reminding us, make no mistake, there is a battle. The battle doesn't just happen on Sunday mornings and it doesn't just happen in moments of temptation. If you and I are not looking at Tuesday morning and Thursday afternoon as part of the cosmic battle that God has placed us in, we are not seeing the world rightly. John reminds us we are in a battle. Look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true and his, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. The video that we've been watching talks about true teaching, true living, and true loving. And that key word in there is truth. Do you notice the words in this verse alone that have to do with knowing the truth? Listen as I read it one more time for you. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Truth has a very high value in God's economy. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Why does truth set you free? Well, Jesus sets you free from the bondage of sin. And he does that by paying your sin penalty and by giving you his righteousness. He's your representative. And so that means that you now have freedom to live with the assurance that you belong to God. And you have the freedom to live with the confidence that your eternal destiny is sure. You have freedom to live with the knowledge that God hears your prayers. You have freedom to live in the midst of the battle knowing that Jesus protects you and he's on your side. John finishes this out then with instructions for us. What's our responsibility? If all of this is true, that John has been saying, that we belong to God and that Jesus has done all of this for us and that we have to have our eyes set on him, what is our responsibility? Verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, John doesn't have in mind gold statues and wooden carvings. That's not what he's got in mind. An idol is anything that takes the place of Jesus. And if you have Jesus in his rightful place, then you can have this assurance and this freedom that John is talking about. Why is it so important? It's because what you do with Jesus matters. Because when Jesus is in his rightful place, you have assurance. When Jesus is Lord, you have eternal life. And so John wants you to know that you belong to God. 
And so he tells you, keep yourself from idols. Don't let other things crowd in. Have your priority where it belongs. Have your eyes on Jesus because that's where your assurance is found. In who he is and in what he's done for you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the assurance that we can have because of who Jesus is and what he has done. We thank you for the cross, for Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, that he's paid our sin penalty and that he has given us his righteousness. And we pray that we would do as John has said here and keep ourselves from idols by keeping our eyes on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.